John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 7. Entry 734.PS9010, Certificate Number 48149, Longitudinal Film. We got a note from uh, Michael, who is in Spokane and is socially distancing because... He's in his 60s and on an immunosuppressant drug, so he's definitely somebody who should be... Oh, yeah. Stay home. Hope you're doing okay, Michael. But he uh, listened to the Longitudinal Film episode where we talked about the internet trend of taking a photo of yourself every day. Uh, He wanted us to know about a college buddy of his at Bard College who, starting in 1979, took a Polaroid of himself every day. So this predates photography being digital, easy, or cheap. Takes a photo of himself in the mirror or turns the land camera around and takes a snap of himself? Because I've done both things and neither one produces a very good Polaroid. Uh, well, he was a professional photographer, also a circus uh, performer, oh, apparently. Oh, oh. I don't know if that helps you take a good picture no, or not. it does, absolutely. Um, but he, uh, it looks to me like he's just holding the camera and facing himself starting in 1979 and he didn't die until 1997 what a hero uh and a few pictures are now missing but almost 7,000 polaroids remain now wait a minute between 1979 and 2007 no 1997 oh okay so that's only 20 years yeah about 18 years uh 18 times 365 would be. 18 times 365 is somewhere on the order of 6,500. Oh, somehow 6,700 of his Polaroids remain. Oh, so maybe slightly more than 18 I, years. I guess, I guess it was early 79 and late 97. There maybe that go. accounts oh, for Oh, so he difference. really did follow through. That's, that's, uh, that's impressive. He never let it off. No, and it documents uh, cancer, engagement, marriage, and it, it, after his death, his friends organized it into a into a film, an, exhi- <laughs> an exhibition. I would watch it as a film. Wouldn't it be a great film? How long would you get? Like, if there's seven thousand pictures, uh, what's a, and each one is a second, that's about the length of a movie, right? Well, but what what is what is a typical film uh, like frame rate? One twenty fourth of a second. But that would be too fast to even recognize. Well, except you'd watch, you know, you'd watch his face. I mean, if the, if you could stabilize it so the face was in the same place, you might actually see, you might actually get some kind of continuity. But if, if he's just taking a Polaroid in front of at different angles and different distances and different backgrounds every day, yeah. different lights. If you did it at one twenty four a second, a you'd still get a minute. The thing would be a minute long. You'd watch him. You'd it be it be. I don't know. Well, you could run it at different frame rates. It would watch not, it for a minute, watch it for five minutes. It would not be a minute long. It would be 300 seconds long. Uh, five minutes. It'd be about five minutes. Wait a minute. Is that right? 7,000 frames, 24 seconds. Oh, I thought you said 124 seconds. No, no, 24. Oh, oh 24, 24 seconds. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, you're right. Um, so at least it would be, at least it'd be an easier sit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If right. you want to watch feature length... It could still be one second. It'd be like tick, 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 tick. I think that the narrative would 
I think I'd get a little bogged down without more of a plot. I just watched a movie. It's not even a movie. It's uh, I think it mostly shows in museums of uh, just trains passing. <laughs> uh-huh. I would watch that for weeks at a time. <laughs> I was kind of into it. I never quite got into I, I was hoping for some kind of hypnotic fugue state where I would think this in some ways this is better than a movie yeah i never quite got there did you ever watch the Craymaster cycle <laughs> i have never have you seen it <laughs> no oh can you watch it for friendly fire That's i don't know what the idea. war is there a war on taste <laughs> <laughs> entry 289.jl0118 certificate number 28929 cow magnets Michael wrote us again about cow magnets. Uh, I guess he used to live in Ellensburg, Washington. Same Michael? Same Michael. Michael, row your boat ashore. Hope you're doing well. Uh, About a a sad story that he saw uh, about 10 years ago in Ellensburg when one of the neighbor's calves ate a sprinkler flag, including the four-long, four-foot-long, sorry, including the foot-long wire stake. Oh, ouch. And uh, so cow magnets maybe could have saved this cow, but it wasn't discovered for months. Oh, no. And by that time, it, it was a little too late it. for the cow. Yeah. On a more, on a happier note. Michael has lived a lot of lives. Uh, that's just how it is in central and eastern Washington. There's a lot going on. Uh, when we mentioned on the cow magnet show that um, ruminants apparently can sense magnetic fields, it was not discovered until recently when people observing herds of cattle and deer and whatnot on Google Earth saw that they tend to graze facing north-south. It helps them migrate. That's how, they, that's how the cows find their way back to Capistrano. That's right. To, to <laughs> Capistrano. You know, they start in the Arctic every, every spring. <laughs> what an amazing journey. Uh, and every year they make their way back. But uh, Dustin wrote in to say that actually he does not believe that cows... Uh, are magnetic. Does Dustin uh, have a uh, a website called Ken is Wrong? <laughs> I think he's probably thinking of starting one. Ken Vos Savant is wrong. He says the problem is when you look at aerial imagery on Google Earth, it's all photogrammetry that was taken during the day, that's taken around midday on sunny days. And so any cow that does not want the sun in his, in his eyes will, uh, will face north. Wow. Science. What do uh, you think? Unfortunately... I actually looked, I was interested. I was like, oh, is that true? I had right. never heard that. Right. I, I looked up the original writings that... Of Nostradamus. <laughs> to see what he would predict. <laughs> I looked for the original scientific journal articles that had discovered the phenomenon, and they had corrected for, they had done their best to correct for that. Oh, interesting. And they found that there was no, I guess, I guess at different latitudes you could tell. I don't, maybe the, I wonder if the aerial imagery is noted with time of day. Maybe you can tell by shadows. Yeah, it must be. Anyway, they had they had corrected for that and found that even if you take that into account, the cows still appear to be reacting to something that is not sunlight. The original scientists did good science. And they still believe that cows have geomagnetic powers uh, unknown to, to other mammals. Wow. You and I presumably do not line up on a north-south axis when we eat a, a, a pizza. No, but I do. I can tell you the direction uh of uh, the direction that my bed faced in every house or apartment I've ever lived in. And let me let me ask you this. Are you talking about a cardinal direction or are you just talking about relative to the room or the front door? A cardinal direction. I can tell you where which direction my head was pointed in every bed I've ever owned. I bet I can too, but I have to think about Well, that's it. what I did one day. I oh. sat down and was like, <laughs> I mean, it, I was like, huh, that's funny. My head pointed north in that bedroom, but then my head pointed west in that bedroom. Which way does I would think of it as which way my feet point? Okay, which way does your head point now? My head currently points south, and mine also points south, which is irregular for me. Typically, uh, my head pointed east. My last house was east. Yeah, look at this. We're so compatible. We should make a a, like a somewhere out there style music video about how, no matter how far apart we are, we might be wishing on the same bright star. For a long time, I thought that I wanted to greet the new day head first. You want to dive into tomorrow? Dive into tomorrow. But then for a while, I wanted my feet to enter the new day first. So I put my bed uh, facing west. Uh, But it turned out that facing west is not 
That's not how I want to go into the new day. I want to go in head first. When I corrected Dustin on this point, he retaliated with the following joke. Oh, let's hear it. Why did the ruminant cross the road? Why? Because it cud. Are we in favor of that? No, I don't think so. Although that's the kind of joke you would tell. Um, Mike, uh, a viewer named Mike. Hello, Mike. Wrote in to point out that, uh, to remind us that when we say the North, that animals graze face in the North Pole, we are talking about the magnetic North Pole, not the actual point on which if the Earth were a globe, the axial spine would enter the Arctic. That's true, Mike. Uh, Why did you take the time to, to send this to us? A future, he says that uh, in recorded history through now, the magnetic North Pole is actually in Hudson Bay, so the animals are facing right. Hudson Bay, and he just wants to make sure we know that today in New York City, your compass points about 13 degrees west of north. I guess that's important if you're trying to figure out which way your bed faces. Yeah, what, what is uh, – it's so funny because so many street alignments are aligned – According to cardinal directions. Seattle's are. But I wonder if street directions are aligned to the magnetic pole oh. or to the actual pole. They must be the magnetic pole. Well, right? plus the magnetic pole has been moving. Right. So that's maybe Seattle streets do no, no longer face north-south. Have you heard about Manhattan Henge? Tell me more. The streets and avenues of Manhattan, of course, do not face north and south. They're parallel to what would be the axis of the island of Manhattan. Right. Which is, uh, can you even, uh, it's like 25 say, degrees. Yeah, it's north by e- northwest. East, or of, east of. North by, yeah, it's, it faces north by. Um, oh, wait, does it? No. Yeah, well, hmm. On most, in most cities where the street grid is north-south and east-west, uh, the sun would set directly due west into the street uh at the equinox. But in New York, that is actually not true. You need the day when the sun falls on, the sun sets at an exact angle of 27 degrees or whatever that is. Uh, and generally, that's sometime, there's going to be two days. Oh, I'm sorry, not the equinox, the solstice. It would usually be the summer solstice. But in New York, it's actually two different alignments, um, one right at the end of May and one in mid-July. So you want to find a good a good observation point on a, a long canyoned New York cross street. 14th is good. 23rd is good. 34th and 42nd are good. 57th is good. And tourists will actually line up to watch the sunset directly between the canyons of skyscrapers right into the street. Isn't that cool? That is kind of cool. Well, it says here that, that Manhattan is tilted actually um, north by northeast. What's the angle? Um, it looks like, it looks about, it's 29 degrees. It looks like. Yeah. 29 degrees off of a North South axis. And you don't get that idea in Manhattan because all of the, you know, the subway maps, for example, all the maps are oriented for your convenience aligned as if the grid were North South. Right. And unless you're looking at Google earth, you don't really know. One other note about the cow magnets shows. Apparently we mentioned this is a popular show for commenters. Apparently, uh, I mentioned something about panda bears not being a good wrestling gimmick. And a wrestling fan named Pat wants to remind me that on October 2nd, 2019, Sammy Guevara debuted on AEW TV to face Cody Rhodes, the son of the great wrestler Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream. It was AEW's first match on TNT, and he 100% has a panda gimmick. Really? But he's not actually wrestling a real panda. They're... I'm watching it now. No, he, uh, and that's not what I was saying. I was saying, wrestle, I was saying wrestling it would be, a kid it would be dumb cosplay? to dress up as a kid. But he has like a panda uh, headdress over his head as if he had killed a panda and was wearing its uh, skin. Oh. Like he's, he's kind of a dances with pandas style warrior. I see. And it's, I don't understand how this gimmick functions because... He's not Chinese. He just drops it in the aisle before he even makes his way to the ring. It's cultural appropriation, taking uh, that panda skin off of real panda-killing Chinese wrestlers. <laughs> well, and real pandas. I mean, surely the panda deserves that more than a Chinese wrestler. I don't feel like you would have that much trouble killing a panda. That's not the point. Exactly. Okay, that's why I'm saying it's odd. Like, why would he show off that he has killed a panda? Right. Not only does it not seem difficult... Nobody, nobody's going to root for this guy. It looks like he's the, 
It looks like he's the face in the match, too. The crowd's going nuts. He's the bad guy, though. He's got to be the bad I, face. I don't know if he <laughs> the bad face. I don't know if he is. Cody Rhodes is in much better shape than his dad was, which is nice. Entry 215.1C1413. Certificate number 5725. Chinook jargon. James uh, is from the Pacific Northwest and had an interesting parallel to the oldsters who speak Chinook jargon. Hmm. He, he has noticed in his own part of northern coastal Oregon uh, that anyone older than 70 around Lincoln City, Oregon, says Grand Round for, mm-hmm. the, for the name of that town, even though it's spelled Rond. Mm-hmm. And so anyone younger than 70 says Grand Rond. Grand Rond. And I don't think I've ever had to say it out loud. And I've certainly never heard anybody say Grand Round. But uh, he really wants us to put this in an addenda episode. He's specific, we're starting to get people requesting that their emails get mentioned. Okay. Uh, and so he wonders if, uh, you know, which is closer to the way that is the older one, for example, the way the original, uh, settlers would have said it. Grand Ronde seems, uh, like a kind of a settler talk. It sounds like a kind of a stake. Grand Ronde. No, I think, I guess Grand Round sounds more like kind of state. I'll eat some Grand Round. Um, in addition, we heard from... Ed, who at some point in the show, did you mention that there is a trans- way to tra- a translation, a dictionary between Chinook Jordan and Esperanto? Uh, yes. And we thought that was delightful. Yes. And we, maybe we were a little patronized because Ed wants us to know that actually that is a very typical Esperanto type project. Oh, really? To translate various uh, lost or, or dying languages into Esperanto. Yes. Even though Esperanto is the kind of thing that could lead to the death of all languages, sure. apparently they are very, Esperantists in general, are worried about linguistic imperialism. Interesting. Uh, and so they're protective of minority language rights. I assume because they once they, their grand plan to take over did not come to fruition, they have now realized that they are a persecuted linguistic minority. And that makes them sympathetic. If Esperanto had truly won, they wouldn't care about Chinook jargon, right? I was uh, I was texting with uh, Sherman Alexi a couple of days ago. About oh, you text with Sherman Alexi. We get it. About, about his uh, uh, family growing up in the in the um, on the Spokane reservation because his, his mother's people were. Uh, Coeur d'Alene and his father's people were span or were uh, Spokane, mm-hmm. and they all speak uh, variations on Interior Salish. And I said, you know, when was the last person you knew that spoke Salish? And he said, well, his great aunt is one of only two people who still speak, you know, their dialect of Salish. And I said, oh, she must be really bored. Or she must be really tormented by all the cultural anthropologists and linguists <laughs> coming by, tape recording her, you know, reading out of the dictionary or whatever, saying every word she can remember. And he said, you know, it's never happened. What? Because even though there are only two living speakers of this language. Is the other one a huge prima donna? No. He said, uh, we are a super unglamorous tribe and no one is studying the Spokane. They, they, we're, we're regarded as kind of just like some... You know the Yakima are pretty, um, pretty well organized and and have a, um, you know, like a, a large population, pretty well established. He I said, didn't realize the Spokane were like a bee tribe. Yeah, he said the Spokane are just sort of relegated to, and even the Spokane reservation. Because then, of course, well, he had me on the hook. I was like, "Tell me more." Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Yeah. He was like, "You know, everybody that's that's glommed together on the Spokane reservation now. We're just all of the." Different tribes from central Washington that little by little got pushed together so that we don't even really, or at least, you know, up until recently, there wasn't even much of a, of a sense of ourselves as it's a the, tribe. the et cetera reservation. Right. Oh, that's a bummer. So really a bummer that, you know, that there are still living people that are, that speak this language and not even the Esperantists are there. If anybody is somehow listening to this in this era, when Sherman's great aunt and this other sp- Spokane speaker are still alive. Please go to their house with an old timey tape recorder. 
bore the shit out of them with your your cultural imperialism. Time is running out. So what's your word for internet? He's going to realize she's like saying the same word for everything. <laughs> Ed actually, I was joking around a little about Esperanto, but Ed is pointing out that the real utopian dream of Esperantus is that everyone speaks their own language at home, but can all speak a collective world second language. Right. In I the see. Esperantist dream, Esperanto is everyone's second language. Oh, I, of course, of course. It's a trade language. They're not trying to replace. And it's this a, is it's Chinook. I and mean, this has kind of happened. It's just that it happened with English. Right? Like, everyone at home speaks their own language, but on the world stage, everyone learned English, which is, uh, you know, it's like Esperanto, but doesn't have the weird um, accent marks over the letters. He yeah. signs He signs off, Duncan Alvi Provia Gojiga Kaj Interessa Podcasto, which I think means, I had relations with your grandmother while listening to your interesting podcast. Hmm. Rude. That is rude. Come on, Ed. Oh, also, I just realized I didn't reply to Ed's thanking him for the email, so I just replied. That's nice of me. Entry 1094.gn3912, certificate number 44390, Sadie Hawkins Day. Uh, Rebecca, a frequent correspondent. Uh, Hello, Rebecca wrote to us about Sadie Hawkins, I think because we mentioned bridge columns, and she wants us to know that uh, her mother and her mother's 93-year-old aunt still loves bridge columns. And more to the point, and they both play bridge online for cash, and her great-aunt's son, which would be her, I don't know. Great-aunt's son is her... Second cousin once removed? Yeah, let's call it that. Who knows? Uh, Is actually Mark Zanger... The inspiration for uh, a Doonesbury character named Megaphone Mark, who went to, because he went to Yale with Gary Trudeau. He led the SDS during Gary Trudeau's time at Yale. Oh, you're talking about Mark. Um, Slackmire, I guess, is the character's name? I can't. Yeah, he's like. Is he a huge Doonesbury character? He is. He's one of the major characters of Doonesbury. Um he he for a while became kind of um like it seemed like Doonesbury's proxy and then at a certain point he came out as gay he was the first gay character in Doonesbury is that right wait isn't that the guy who isn't that the AIDS patient who died listening to wouldn't it be nice that's a different guy i don't know also he was the he was jewish i think um and then he became a journalist. Re- uh, Rebecca is uh, Rebecca Silverman and uh, sent us a Shana Tova email. Uh, I assume on Rosh Hashanah, although I can't see the date. So maybe your story checks out, John. Uh, yeah, he was, he's like a, he's one of the major Doonesbury characters. Well, his cousin, Rebecca, the only reason I'm mentioning this is because as I looked back in her email to us, she had sent us the following after we did zombies uh her theory about why zombieism is a big thing is because it's viral a zombie eats your brain and then you become a zombie similarly in the past 30 years we've seen an unprecedented uptick in viral and bacterial pandemics due to international travel and human animal encroachment the threat of a global pandemic is real and zombie media might reflect that anxiety about unstoppable viral contagions perhaps a viral pandemic will be the cataclysm now she sent this to us on October 29th of last year Whoa. uh interesting i i i like an i like that theory i feel like an aspect of it is true but the but a key element of all zombie media is that the healthy people have to violently dispatch the zombies who are trying to infect them with their zombiness. So Which that's is not not what uh, it's not an epidemiological reaction. Yeah, it's, it's more not, visceral than that. It's not typical of a pandemic that the that the um, that the infected people then try to infect you, and your only defense is to chop off their heads. So I, I feel like her her uh, her theory uh, has has a lot of weight, but there's more to it than that. Maybe so. But there is something of that in the idea that it could be you next. Which of your friends has it right. that, that we're thinking about more acutely now? Brains. Brains. 
Entry 823.MT2538 Certificate number 50150 Naked Came the Stranger This was the fall fake erotic novel that was actually uh, a collaboration between a bunch of disgruntled journalists they, uh, that felt like pornographers were making all the money. They to this day they're not wrong. Well, I mean, it's hard times for pornographers today, but it's much harder times for journalists. Yes. And you can't necessarily become a cam girl. Because people still want pornography. Yeah, you can't become a cam girl just because you lost your job at uh, Vox. Um, although most most do both. Um, Michael wanted us to know about Naked Came the Manatee. Are you hmm. aware of the quasi-sequel or spiritual sequel to Naked Came the Stranger called Naked Came the Manatee? Is this a Dave Barry prank? It absolutely is. Uh, it is a, uh, a bunch of Miami-area writers wrote it as a serial in the Miami Herald in the mid nineties. Uh, and I think Dave Barry is the first chapter. And then he hands it off to a bunch of other less famous writers. Although Elmore Leonard is on the list. Wow. Hmm. And then finally at the end, Carl the Hyacinth, Elmore Leonard, the Elmore Leonard. <laughs> and finally at the end, the Carl Hyacinth, the patron saint of, of Florida literature, if that's a thing had to, had to tie all the threads together. Um, and it's kind of a noir, thriller it's it's not an erotic novel about manatee sex i'm sorry too bad uh it's about uh throw that cosplay idea out the window but but it is about a manatee another bad wrestling gimmick about a manatee named booger who delivers a package again not in a porn way uh, the hero, the detective hero, adventure hero, appears to be an elderly environmentalist and his plucky granddaughter. Mm, I'm not. Uh, I'm not racing out to read this. But you're a Dave Barry fan. Was I mean? It's not that I ever stopped being a Dave Barry fan. It's just that I, I quit avidly pursuing his work after about 1987. Did you last longer with PJ O'Rourke? No. Well, I. Uh, uh, no, I didn't. About 87 is when I stopped reading P.J. O'Rourke. Oh, I, I see. The, Booger is not actually a good delivery person. Uh, things go awry in a boat collision, and uh, the mysterious MacGuffin package flies off the boat and snags onto a manatee. Oh. So the manatee, it's more of a that darn cat kind of a yeah, like, scenario. It seems like a great opportunity for the Apple Dumpling Gang to slip on top of a, <laughs> of a, uh, of a mining... There's probably a fan boat. Anyway, if you want to read, if you want to read the book, chapter one is by your hero Dave Barry. Then, if you want, maybe skip ahead to the Elmore Leonard chapter, chapter twelve, and then Carl Hyacinth has the uh, has the hardest job. You feel like you can just read three chapters of this book and get the gist of it? Uh, so far, I've done great reading zero chapters of this book, <laughs> so I think I'll be okay. Well, thanks for the heads up. Entry 778.JB3122, certificate number 28586, Mesoamerican Ball Game. We heard from G. Patrick Lee at the University of Colorado Law School. I thought you were going to say we heard from Quetzalcoatl. We did. (laughs) We heard from the feathered serpent himself, and he warns us strongly not to mention his domain again on our little show. Uh, No, Patrick Lee is a a human rights attorney in Boulder who who specializes in uh, indigenous Mesoamerican land rights and, in fact, has been representing – his team has been representing the Maya of Belize. Uh, They prefer to say Maya. uh, He says the Guatemalans, the Mexicans prefer Mayan, whereas the Belizeans prefer Maya. Interesting. Uh, Trying to get them their land and, and civil rights back. And uh, this is my favorite thing. I have no corrections for that show. It's oh, oh. like the best seven words in the English language. Well done. Because it's more common to hear from people who have worked for 20 years in the field that you're spouting off about. Right. And and uh, it turns out your hour and a half of research does not equal their expertise. <laughs> but uh, Oh, but there's a but. There, well, there's some interesting additional information. It's more like I don't want to correct anything, and yet... Here are some things you didn't mention. (laughs) Uh, But it's really interesting. I guess uh, in the mid-2000s, Belize signed over its legal jurisdiction to the Caribbean Court of Justice. No longer, even though it's a member of the, it was a former member of the British, it's still a member of the British Commonwealth. Um, And it used to use the British Privy Council, which I guess is some kind of multinational Commonwealth 
legal court. Right. But instead, uh, these battles over Maya land rights are now going on in the Caribbean Court of Justice. Oh. And in 2015... Where is that located? I'm going to say the Caribbean. Okay. In 2015... Uh, the, Belize Const- the, the word property in the Belize Constitution was interpreted by this international court to demand equal protection uh, of the law to, in- to include communal Mayan lands. In other words, giving uh, the Maya, Maya people, um, land rights back over their land, which he compares to—he calls a groundbreaking civil rights decision on the level of Brown v. Board for them. Wow. It's been five years and really nothing on the ground has changed. Villages right. are constantly saying, hey, uh, so this is our land, right? But uh, it hasn't really gotten a lot of press outside of Belize. And as I may have mentioned on the show, there's like, you know, 105 people in Belize. You turn on the nightly news and it looks like a high school news show because yeah. it's it's a small country. But you've got some enforcement uh, problems now. It's one thing right. to pass the law. It's another thing to uh, the last build mile a fence. problem. Yeah. yeah, especially if it's the Caribbean Court of Justice that right. has to right that has to enforce this. They don't have their own blue helmeted troops. I mean, we're not living in a country now that's enforcing its own legal decisions, and subpoenas, and whatnot. So I don't think you and I can demand that Belize do much. I am absolutely going to demand that Belize recognize the. Uh, the land rights of the Maya. It is the official position of the Omnibus Podcast that Belize is being insufficiently uh, responsive responsive to the the court decisions about Maya land rights. I hope that I hope that settles it. Entry three two eight dot de zero two zero three certificate number three five four three five the De Havilland Beaver. Now, you know, in past shows, I felt like uh, in the last addenda, they all wanted to talk about Ken shows, and now they're just, uh, they, uh, everybody's got something to say about my shows. That's true. I'm starting, to, I'm starting to wonder whether it's a compliment or an insult when you get a bunch of addenda. It just means it's streaky. You know, that's actually a thing that you can do. You can, um, I've, I've read an article by a, some kind of statistics or probability professor who has his students write down a list of fake coin flips and he can or he has them do a real series of 20 coin flips and write down the actual outcome and then he mixes in with a bunch of fake ones that people have written and he can look through a whole class and tell which is the run of 30 actual coin flips whoa and the secret is that when you fake coin flips you never put in enough streaks oh people you don't will, do people, heads heads people heads people will be like heads tails heads tails tails heads tails tails whereas the real one will always have like five or six in a row huh and it's in fact the the IRS has a ton of and other auditing agencies have a ton of heuristics like that that they can use to detect fraud like all these transactions were you know even numbers instead of odd numbers like there's not enough streaks of odd numbers in a row this person's making up numbers on their itemization it's like when i used to um when i used to fill out homework assignments based on the teacher's uh, grading book that I pilfered from my geometry teacher's desk one afternoon, once upon a midnight dreary. I always put in 10% wrong answers because I didn't want to suddenly be getting straight A's. And did it work? I mean, it worked in that I'm 51 years old now and not in prison and i have a college degree it's a plot point of the movie mean girls that this will become self-fulfilling prophecy the people who try to be dumb on a math test for social purposes will in fact get bad at math wow so let that be a lesson to you yeah well it is i still can't do geometry Lindsay lohan uh after a an unusual screed about social media and pornography being as bad as lead poisoning because we have not evolved to deal with such stimuli um, Bart wants to talk about how his first remote control plane was a foam beaver. No, that's so cool. And he said it flew great, whereas his A-10 Warthog RC plane only flew three feet and crashed. And his contention is, and I don't know enough about remote control planes to know if this is true or not, that uh, they will actually mirror the attributes of the designs that they are copying. And a, a, a great design like an RC beaver will fly better 
than its counterparts. Do you think that's true? I do. I think that plain design over the last 40 years has um, has changed such that modern planes, you know, what, what, what I say on the show all the time, the old adage that airplanes want to fly, um, modern planes do not want to fly. Modern planes are forced to fly because we ask them to do so much more uh, to perform so many different tasks. The beaver was made to fly slow and long and lift heavy things into the air and be bulletproof. The A-10 Warthog is supposed to be able to, I mean, it carries a cannon that's the size of a Volkswagen Bug. It's supposed to fly, you know, slow over a war zone and take all kinds of cannon fire and survive. It's it's not like elegant. And I think the F-35 can't even stay in the air if the if the computers go down. It's not even aerodynamic. It's like Tinkerbell. If the computers <laughs> stop believing that this plane can fly, it cannot fly. Because because in order for it to remain stable, it has to be the computer has to be making micro adjustments to all these different flight planes. Um and if it stops, you know, a pilot can't just do it with a stick. It's it's um it's a it's a case of like aviation design trying to tick off all these boxes that have nothing to do with making a good plane. I've seen a bunch of people flying remote control planes during the pandemic have because you? well, because what else can you do? It's, oh, you go up to Karkeek Park is what you do. Uh, I feel like Karkeek has a RC plane field, and there's a big sign saying, "Here's the RC plane field. RC planes are not allowed," or something. There, there used to be that used to be an RC plane field when I was a kid. Yeah, and I remember the... seeing a sign that said no RC planes, and I was like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> it's still on the map as the plane field, right? Um, maybe there, it's maybe because in the drone era now every kid has one and it's it's not just uh, 11, 11 nerdy dads you can trust. There's a dedicated RC airport out by Merrimore Park. That's where I was. Oh, what are, were you doing there? I got lost. And you were like, hmm, what's that over there? It's an RC I was trying to find field. Woodville. No, we take the dogs out there. That's the best dog park in, in oh, yeah. Puget Sound area. Um because you, it's if you, ginormous, the dogs don't stamp all the grass into um, dirt, and it's right on the Sammamish River, so the dogs can swim. Right. Uh, and yeah, people were going nuts with their airplanes. People were doing loops. Oh, people yeah. were doing maneuvers I thought they weren't going to get out of, but they did. Uh, I was thinking maybe I need to start my new life as a RC plane dad. My co-host of the Friendly Fire podcast, Adam Pranica, is an RC modeler. He and his dad used to used to fly planes together. He had like a Cetabria, which is such a weird plane to make an RC model of. But some of the the real dedicated RC modelers only want to make planes that no one else would make. Oh. So they... they Wait, you make them yourselves? A lot of times, But it's yeah. a kit, no? Well, mm-hmm. some of them are, but you can make them your, yourself. Wow. And rather than just be a guy out there with one more uh, Fokker triplane... Um, to be somebody that's flying a, you know, a de Havilland Comet or something, nobody else is going to have one. It's like going to the car show and, uh, you know, not everyone can have a Porsche 911. Sometimes you show up in the weirdest little sort of Puma and uh, and you're the star of the show. Look at these stupid Fockers. Entry 1234.RV1615. Certificate number 41916. Streaking. Streaking the fad of running naked in uh, for a brief season in 1974. Season in the sun. <laughs> Literally, a season in the sun. We did have fun. Uh, Dave wanted us to know about the connection between streaking and the San Diego Padres. Okay, the Padres. You know, my um, my elementary school Little League team was called the Padres. And um, we had, we wore the classic 70s Padres uniforms. The gold and orange, or the, the orange and brown Padres uniforms. So I feel a real alliance with the Padres. Yeah, I think we recently dissed teams with brown uniforms and got a ton of pushback from Cleveland and 
San Diego fans. Right. Uh Scared, not scared. Dave wants us to know that if not for Ray Kroc, the possibly unscrupulous McDonald's wizard and uh, popularizer of modern fast food, the San Diego Padres would never would not be the San Diego Padres, much in the oh. same way that uh, Mariner baseball was saved by a fortuitous comeback against the Yankees in that ALDS. Tell me more about this. Uh the owner of the San Diego Padres was broke in its fourth year of uh, Major League Baseball. They had entered the league in 69, the same year as the Seattle Pilots. Now, they were, they now were the Milwaukee an expansion Brewers. team, right? They were a terrible expansion team. Their owner is broke and is negotiating with Washington, D.C. about moving them in the middle of the season. Whoa. Uh, moving them to where? Washington, D.C. Okay. And it's it's it becomes realistic enough that uh, Topps starts putting Washington National League team on their baseball cards for that year, where uh-huh. it should say San Diego Padres. <laughs> so it's a picture of Willie McCovey in a Padres hat, and it says Washington National League, because they're assuming it will no longer be the Padres once they move to the Beltway. And, and was that just a was that just a stand-in name, or were, were had the Washington Nationals already picked their name? Uh, no, it just yeah, it, it's not related to the Washington Nationals. Although I think there was an earlier team called the Nationals that played out of DC. This just says Washington National League as a placeholder. I see Weird. because it's not clear what the team name will be because they haven't moved yet, but everyone thinks it's going to happen. Uh, but Ray Kroc fl- flies to San Diego, has a lunch meeting with the beleaguered owner is told it's only $12 million and says, deal. Only $12 million. It's um, it's $2 million more than Steinbrenner had just paid for the Yankees. Whoa. It was a high price, and Smith now thinks he could have said $20 million, and Kroc would have paid. Wow. Uh, what year was this? 1974. In 74, you could buy the Yankees for $10 million? Yeah, would you have done so? Yeah. I would have bought the Silver Dome. Yeah, I probably would have bought the Yankees. I think I the know. Yankees made more money in the long run than the Silver Dome. I don't like the Yankees. Maybe well, I maybe I would if I'd been the owner my entire life. I, I was born in seventy four. If uh if I had bought the uh the New England Patriots, I could have shut them down. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna buy the Yankees just to shut them down. I'm like a one of these You're a Mets fan. I'm one of these hedge fund <laughs> VC guys. Who strips the Yankees for parts? I just want a bunch of pinstripe uniforms. <laughs> anyway, Ray Kroc has a rough start. Uh, the Padres go zero and three at the start of the season. Outscored twenty five to two by the Dodgers. They return for a homestand against the Astros. Uh, Ray Kroc is in the house and he tells the crowd, "With your help and God's help, we'll give him hell tonight." Oh, it's God. He thinks God is a Padres well, fan. Well, I mean, God—they're the only team. Are they the only team that are named for with a religious monks? They've got to be. I mean, the New Jersey Devils are named for the opposite of of uh, clerics, right? You're going to guess that you're going to guess that God does not support the Devils or the Sun Devils or the Brewers making the Devils drink beer. Probably not, right? I, I, so I don't know what the other most religious professional sports teams names. They're God's are. team. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the Astros go up. Nine to two in the eighth inning, and Croc makes his way back to the press box, grabs the microphone, and this time, instead of calling on divine favor, he says, Fans, I suffer with you. I've never seen such stupid ball playing in my life. Over the PA? <laughs> Over the PA. But this being the spring of 1974, a naked man jumps right then, jumps out on the field and streaks it and, and streaks the field. Don't look, Ray. But it's too late. Croc is yelling, get that streaker out of there. Throw him in jail. Uh, He becomes a Coen Brothers character. (laughs) And then he goes back. And then then he says, I have good news and bad news. The good news is the Dodgers drew 31,000 for their opener, and we've drawn 39,000 for ours. The bad news is this is the most stupid baseball playing I've ever seen. (laughs) So as you can imagine, the crowd is going nuts, and the team is pissed. Awesome. Like Willie McCovey is mad. He tells a reporter, we're pros. We're doing the best we can. His words will ring in the players' ears for a long time. Even the Astros are mad. And uh, and Houston files a complaint with Major League Baseball. Croc has to apologize. 
but uh, the tirade goes over great with fans and right. uh, and helps helps stanch the bleeding during a season in which the Padres once again lose over a hundred games. Right. But uh, but that great moment in baseball history was interrupted by a streaker. Entry five four nine dot one five three one one three. Certificate number three seven six two eight. Green funerals. We talked about alternate eco-friendly means of burial and uh, body disposal. We're yeah, maybe not even burial. You're right, and weren't. I know I was in favor of. Uh, having a tree planted on my grave. I was in favor of being fertilized. Or were you also in favor of being fertilized? I can't remember what you, where you came down on your, uh, your own green funeral. You know, my worry about, uh, about being fertilizer for a tree, for instance, is that a tree also has a lifespan. And so you die again and now you're firewood. You're at a or chair. Ant food for a second time. So I feel like I would want to be something that was, you know, I'd want to be cast into, uh, like a maybe a plate that would get ca- you know passed down from generation to generation, like oh it's it's uh, great 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 grandpa John in the form of a plate. Does the plate look like you? Well, it has a has a Delft painting of me. Oh wait, I'm referring to our terrible local uh, white supremacist artist, <laughs> yeah, no, Charles Graff. No Delft well, painting. So no, uh, but I but I I don't know. A tree just feels a little impermanent. Mark on Facebook has another concern about my plan okay. of, uh, of people coming back as trees. His worry is that this is how you get haunted forests. Oh. Do, you want, do you want a haunted forest? Make sure there's a grove of trees where each one includes the soul of the dead. Well, now let me ask you, do you not want a haunted forest? <laughs> I feel like a lot of the problems in the world are that there are fewer haunted, haunted forests than we need. I would like to be maybe the cranky tree from Wizard of Oz that like starts pulling his own apples out of his hair and just chucking them at Dorothy and Scarecrow. I would like to be the king of the Ents. Yeah, we would all come back as Ents. Yeah, come back as Ents and and Storm Isengard. And also, like like trees, Ents live for hundreds of years. You really think that's not enough of a lifespan extension for you? Whom, whom, whom. Uh, Well, I'm not looking for an extension. It feels like if you're... If you live to be 80 or 800, you're still living a finite amount. Yeah, but somebody can break a plate. I don't know what you're... I don't know what, what do I want? What, I want to be cast into a, like some kind of obelisk. I mean, we talked about the diamond thing. Oh, yeah. That's pretty permanent. Or shot into space. That seems fun. <laughs> that's, that's the opposite. That's a momentary thrill ride. And then as soon as you re-enter the atmosphere, it's just a... A cremation that no guests can attend. What about shot into space behind the wheel of a Corvette on its way to Mars? Like Elon Musk? Yeah, like Elon Musk should have been done. We also got a note from Nora, which I, I think I assume you saw because uh, you mentioned the co-op funeral home. Yes. Uh, and uh, I guess she had been forwarded this because she is with that organization. Right. She's the executive director okay. of the People's Memorial Association. All right. And she was glad you and your loved ones had a good experience with their uh, with their fine product. And she wants to make sure that we provide accurate information about okay. her organization for future generations. Sure, here we go. This is the plug. Head damned. The Urban Death Project is now called Recompose, which is pretty good. Recompose. You don't decompose. You recompose. And uh, remember, I was very skeptical of the siloing method. We talked a lot about. Yeah, we you talked were a lot like, about. I don't want to be in a pile of a bunch of other. I don't people. want to be sluiced anywhere. Right. No, uh, they apparently have come around to my way of thinking. Right on. And are individually composting human remains in vessels. Uh, so I think you're in some kind of, and I think my wife was actually pl- uh, plumping for this as well that you become. Uh, you're in some kind of earthenware thing and it's still going to be the same problem. You're going to become compost and whatever the plant that comes out of you is will die. Right. But at least that's an object that was you that then explodes into new life. Um, Aquamations, which is kind of a cremation with water instead of fire. uh, It's legal in both Washington and Oregon and they're already doing them in Oregon. And she says that they use the liquid effluent from that to fertilize nearby grass fields. So they're actually providing local farmers with 
what would you call it? The waste product of their own customers. Yes. In Soylent Green fashion. Well, you know, we do that. fertilize the fields. We do that with the uh, effluent of our um, of our waste plants here. Sure. Take our poop and ground up toilet paper and spread it on our fields to grow corn. So why not our blood and bone dust as well? Here, here. I mean, we do this with our podcast as well. We take the liquid effluent of past shows and use it to fertilize these uh, addenda episodes. <laughs> Entry 461.RV1620, certificate number 50204, Ferdinandea. This was the uh, seamount that rises out of the Mediterranean. And then goes back to whence it came. Causes problems and then erodes away. Uh, we heard a lot about Ferdinandia. Uh, there are a couple real-life parallels that we didn't mention. Oh. Uh, Ed Bermela reminds us that uh, China is currently in the middle of its own massive Ferdinandia-style project in the South China Sea. Right, to to build islands to uh, like express its hegemony over the region. Yeah, the uh, Spratly and Paracel Islands in the South China Sea uh, are jointly and variously claimed by just about every country in the region. China, Vietnam, Taiwan, Philippines, uh, but only China— has the infrastructure to do the following, build these huge Jawa sandcrawler-like dredge ships <laughs> that just go around picking up tons of sand from the bottom of the ocean. So crazy. And then just dumping them onto these atolls to make real islands that then extend Chinese territoriality and are permanent enough that you can put airstrips and missile emplacements on them. Because the the ocean is so shallow there that it's that they don't have to reach... So far down to do it. And normally this would be a problem that they were, that China was um, claiming land rights in the middle of the ocean and putting airstrips there. But once they dump land on coral reefs, they claim. The problem is not just a geopolitical one, it's also just an environmental holocaust, what they're doing. I mean, when they dredge up the stuff from the seafloor, you also get turtles and whatever else is down there. Right. Who are then surprised to be. Bummed. P- part of an island. Right. Bummed to be in the middle of an island where only moments ago they were they were happily in the sea. And uh and then when you dump it on a coral reef, of course, that's just the Even last worse. thing the last thing the reef needs is to have sand and tur- dead turtles raining on it from above. But I'm guessing the Chinese government in trying to extend its territoriality and build missile and airplane launching bases isn't worried about these these kvetching and complaining, whining turtles. I think it would be out of character for them to put environmental considerations first, at right, least. Right. Uh, we also, uh, Dave wanted us to talk about Cortez Bank, which is a similar barely submerged. Is that like a spank bank? Seam- yeah. I've got this in my Cortez Bank. <laughs> it's where I think about the hottest conquistadors. Uh, it's about 100 miles off the coast of San Diego. Uh, and normally troubles no one except for boats that have to know to avoid it because right. it's fairly shallow. Cortez Bank. But uh, sometimes people have wondered if Cortez Bank could be built into an island, Ferdinandia style. Um, in, oh, so it's that close to the surface. Yes. And, well, in 1966, the plan by a, a group of local businessmen was to scuttle a ship. In fact, one of these – have we done this on Omnibus? These concrete-hulled World War II frigates? No, we haven't. But uh, I think we've been talking about doing it. Yeah, that turn into an artificial reef. Yeah, but instead of uh, – right, instead of actually doing it on purpose to, to dump it on top of this island just to make it tall enough to clear the surface and therefore become possibly – uh, their own nation. They could found the the constitutional monarchy of Abalonia. Is it outside of the the uh, territorial limits of the United States? Yeah, hundred miles offshore. Oh, I guess. Oh, hundred miles would would be okay. So they they uh, their plan was to just bring in a bunch of boulders and make a big pile of rocks on top of this concrete ship, and then once they're in international waters, they can just declare their own nation. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, today this is a, even though it's a hundred miles offshore, it's popular, a popular surfing spot because the the waves that arrive, the big waves that arise near Bishop Rock 
And uh, these huge waves immediately washed aside Abalonia. Oh, so they tried to do this. Yes. Uh, but none of the builders, none of the boulders that they placed uh, survived. And so all they my, did was my, ruin this surfing spot. It's still a surfing spot today. They, they briefly ruined it in the 60s when they were trying to make a pile of boulders there. But I don't know if there were a bunch of surfers mad at them. Uh, it's not mentioned in Surfing USA. So I'm right. not sure. Uh, speaking of China, uh, uh, Mindy on Facebook, not my wife Mindy, a different Mindy, uh, probably the last Mindy. So there's not, they're not making a lot of Mindy's anymore. Your wife is also on Facebook, though, so it could be her. <sighs> could be her if she's using a different last name. We mentioned Hell Money because some, I think somebody sent us some Hell Money, some Chinese paper oh, yeah. money called yeah, Hell yeah. Money. Yeah. And we didn't know or say what it was. Right. We uh, still don't know, but let's say. Well, they, uh, no, Mindy corrected us to say these are not actually currency. They are stand-ins for burnt offerings for the deceased. Oh, of course. Like if you need to make a ceremonial fire for your ancestors and toss in something valuable. The ancestors aren't going to know the difference between fake money and real. It matters to us. But you're going to care. We're going to be out, uh, you know, 100,000 yuan if we keep tossing our money. So that's why there's these impossibly huge denominations of fake money that you can toss in with your incense. And then it's like, look, I just gave billions of dollars um, right. to, to the uh, to the fire. And so it's just a kind of, it's just decoration on the Joss paper. So we apologize for the Interesting. omission. Finally, on this episode, Catherine reached out because apparently we got two Greek, or I got two Greek things wrong. Uh-oh. In that episode. Uh-oh, busted. And she's a professional ancient Greek philosopher. Of course. Of uh, course. So let's bring it on. This one I totally deserve. I apparently said the Oresteia was by Euripides. No, it's by Aeschylus. That is correct. The Oresteia is by Aeschylus. You have control of the board. Uh, we mentioned a Mediterranean volcano, undersea volcano, seamount, which has recently been named Empedocles. And we said it was for the philosopher who came up with the four elements of matter, which she kind of debunks a little bit, but says that's a minor point. But she wants us to know that Empedocles uh, wrote a lot of poems about how awesome he was and wore bronze shoes. Hmm. We have both those things in common. Why would you wear bronze shoes? doesn't seem comfortable. Because when you hit the block, the people know you're coming. <laughs> I guess. They hide what they're eating before you start bumming. It's good for tap dancing, maybe? No, terrible for tap dancing. Anyway, he was a very flashy figure. And the reason why she the reason why a volcano was named after him is because of the way that he died. He's from Sicily, and in most of the stories about Empedocles, he dies by throwing himself into Mount Etna. Okay. In some versions of the story, he Glad thinks I met you. <laughs> In some versions of the story, he thinks he's going to survive. Because his bronze shoes will protect him <laughs> as he <laughs> Moonwalks across the lava face? No, because he's he is a Kanye-like figure who believes himself to be indestructible. Oh, I see. He believes he has godlike powers. Uh, in other versions of the story, he wants his followers to think that he has been uh, what's the word? Anointed. Yeah, taken up by the gods. Oh, I see. He, yeah, right. That it's been some kind of he apotheosis ascends. that he's ascended to the gods, and they'll only think that if they don't find a body. And so he throws himself in. But here's where the shoes work against him. They find his shoes. And so everyone realizes— and if the gods were going to take him up, that's the thing about the rapture, right? They take your car, too. I don't think they take your car. Or he, in whoever. Those, in those in Leftovers or Kirk Cameron straight-to-video Christian movies or whatever, cars and planes are always crashing because they were unwise enough to have sinners so why, behind the wheel. So why—well, uh, why, wait a minute. No, if they had sinners behind the wheel, the plane would still be flying. They had righteous behind the wheel. And oh, that's then the true. Sinners were like, "Wait a minute, who's flying?" The, the righteous plane? should have been back in first class. Sure. The the sinners should have been their uh, designated drivers and pilots. But oh. so, why would his shoes have given him away? He could have still ascended. I mean, when Jesus rose directly into heaven, or when Muhammad rode a white horse into heaven, they weren't. They presumably didn't have their shoes on. Here's what here's what actually what happened. The uh, in one of the stories, the volcano throws back up the shoe. One one of the bronze sandals comes mm. popping out the top, mm. and that's when they realize, oh, 
he didn't get he didn't ascend with his shoes intact. Right. He just jumped into the volcano. What a faker. And I knew about this story because of the Matthew Arnold poem Empedocles and Etna, which I should have mentioned, but I missed out. And that's why Catherine is able to and she volunteers herself as an expert on Greek philosophy and antiquity from oh. now from now on. Well we can consult her. If you have any other questions, okay. uh Catherine is our woman. Entry 508.GN2716. Certificate number 26505. Furries, our favorite. This is tangentially related to furries. Uh, A listener from Israel named Mike Rosenthal uh, reached out with some of his artwork, which I complimented, and I guess that was enough to encourage him to send his next artwork. He... uh, he enjoys work that includes pigs and or oatmeal. Okay. Like, and, like, and what, like, like many artists. So like uh, paintings of or actual pigs and oatmeal is his performance art or his installation work. This appears to be digital art. It has kind of an airbrushed quality that could actually be airbrushed, but I, I think the, his, uh, his pigs and oatmeal is done digitally. So no actual pigs or oats were harmed okay. in the making of these. Uh, Apparently, he's a classic rock fan. He wants us to know that he enjoys Hendrix, Santana, Zappa, Jeff Beck, and the Almonds. All of the great classic rock. And that's why he really wants us to know that this picture he sent me of Slash as a pig is not inspired by Slash at all. Even though you can tell from the hat that it's probably Slash. Well, if the pig is named Slash and is wearing a hat, how is it not inspired by Slash? Well, the the pig is not named Slash. His email goes to great lengths to insist that this Slash-resembling pig is not Slash, and he lists his love of the Allman Brothers and Jeff Beck and so forth as as his bona fides to show that he is somebody who would never think of Slash as a top-tier guitarist. Did Whoa. Did we mention this art on the show, or why is this... No. Uh, oh, I see. <laughs> this, this, okay. has, this has nothing to do with anything except that he uh, is, is interested enough in pigs and oatmeal to imagine... What if the lead guitarist of Guns N' Roses were a uh, warthog? Can you show me this picture so I'll be the judge of whether or not it is a picture of Slash? The blonde hair is perhaps the biggest impediment. Oh, I see. It's just a... It's like a... So the hat... Rock hat. The hat is not a Slash top hat. It's more of a... I would would call that a hat that you might see on the band... um, Fog hat, or you know, it could be <laughs> or other like bands a, with hat in the name. Yeah, it could be a hat worn by um, by Nazareth. If you were in Nazareth and were wearing that hat, I could see you get away. It's with true. That. It's got it's got like a band and feathers, yeah. which is not super slashy. But he really wanted me to know that this is not meant to be splashed. All right. Well, good that we slash. have established that. Although I would I would say there are a lot of people that would argue that slash is in. Well, maybe, sure. Maybe not the like the the oxen, oxygenless realms of the very top guitarists of all time, but Slash is in the top rank for sure. I mean, yeah. I don't know why he's saying if I like Hendrix and Jeff. I mean, nothing against. I mean, obviously Hendrix. Obviously Hendrix is so, a class of his own. Yeah, right. But he just wants me to know he was never really impressed by Slash, and he hope he does. He hopes he doesn't lose any points with us over that. What do you think? Or do you think a little less of Mike now that you know he's not impressed by Slash? I, it's not that he's not impressed by Slash. I can, I can do that. But you know, the if you start to put, pit Jeff Beck against Slash, you know you're into you're pretty deep in the weeds now of guitar player argument. Um, there are a lot of people that are going to agree that Jeff Beck is a better guitar player than Slash. More, certainly more inventive, but uh, so I, I Slash is you know. Just doing it. He's he's playing a different ball game. And I asked him if Slash is a warthog. Does that mean that is there a Lion King situation here? Is Axl Rose a meerkat in this band? And uh, the next day he wrote back. I love that you have a long like a like a conversation with him. He wrote back with this uh, picture of what Axl Rose would look like as a meerkat. That's a pretty good rendition of Axl Rose as a meerkat. It's the best I have ever seen. Yeah, of all the of all the representations of Axl Rose as a meerkat. Yes, 
I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that's one of the best I've ever seen. And I wanted to bring this up because I'm going to put these images on the Patreon feed for those who who give it the right tier to see the image feed. And uh, the rest of you, we're, I guess we're just taunting you that you can't see what Axel Rose would look like as a meerkat. That's got to hurt. Cons- consider, we're going to upsell you. Consider, uh, consider upping your donation to take a look at what Axel Rose would look like as a meerkat. So now we have, we're talking only to our Patreon subscribers here in this episode. Yes. And now you're saying in order to get to the next level to see these illustrations, That's, some of you are going to have to bump it up. For $5 a month, you can hear us describe this, the pig and oatmeal art of uh, Mike Rosenthal. But for ten dollars a month, to actually see it, you can take it all in. And and sadly, Mike gets none of this. No, sorry, Mike. He got a nice email from me. Hard to know if Mike even listens to the the addenda. He might be. He might be one of those cranks that writes in and doesn't even want to hear it. He gave me permission to put the things on our image feed, and then sent a picture of a pig picking its nose and putting its head through some kind of hole in a plank of wood. Perhaps like, and he's wearing like an old timey preacher's hat. I'm not sure what's going on here. Maybe he's. Oh, in, is he in the stocks? He's in the stocks in Massachusetts Bay Colony. Yeah, that's what I think it is. He's a Puritan nose picking. Because look at his uh, little bib, his hanky bib. Yes. He's a he's a Cotton Mather figure, but a dumb one, a nose picking one. It's anti Puritan art. And I don't see any oatmeal. Oatmeal being a, a Puritan breakfast, though. Oh, sure, that's who it is. It's the Quaker from Quaker Oats. Oh, that's why. It I, doesn't need oatmeal. I understand the reference. It's what if the Quaker Oats guy was a pig with bad teeth? Yeah. I understand. This uh yeah, this relationship between you two, I'm interested to see how it develops. What a what a um what a delightful bromance yeah. I'm having with this Israeli what are, pig artist. What are you what Oh interesting, he's Israeli and his work is, uses pigs. Now oatmeal is kosher. Sure. However, a pig wearing a a, a Nazareth hat? There's got to be something about that in Leviticus. I'm going to have to consult my rabbi. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 7. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus. <laughs>